Section 35 of Self-Help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Self-Help. With Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 13. Character. The True Gentleman. Part 2. William and Charles Grant were sons of a farmer in Invernessshire, who a sudden flood stripped of everything, even to the very soil which he tilled. The farmer and his sons, with the world before them where to choose, made their way southward in search of employment until they arrived in the neighborhood of Bury in Lancashire. From the crown of the hill near Walmsley they surveyed the wide extent of country which lay before them, the river Irwell, making its circuitous course through the valley. They were utter strangers in the neighborhood and knew not which way to turn. To decide their course they put up a stick and agreed to pursue the direction in which it fell. Thus their decision was made, and they journeyed on accordingly until they reached the village of Ramsbotham, not far distant. They found employment in a printwork in which William served his apprenticeship and they commanded themselves to their employers by their diligence, sobriety, and strict integrity. They plodded on, rising from one station to another, until at length the two men themselves became employers, and after many long years of industry, enterprise, and benevolence, they became rich, honored, and respected by all who knew them. Their cotton mills and print works gave employment to a large population, their well-directed diligence made the valley teem with activity, joy, health, and opulence. Out of their abundant wealth they gave liberally to all worthy objects, erecting churches, funding schools, and in all ways promoting the well-being of the class of working men from which they had sprung. They afterwards erected, on the top of the hill above Walmsley, a lofty tower in commemoration of the early event in their history which had determined the place of their settlement. The brothers Grant became widely celebrated for their benevolence and their various goodness, and it is said that Mr. Dickens had them in his mind's eye when delineating the character of the brothers cheerfully. One of many anecdotes of a similar kind may be cited to show that the character was by no means exaggerated. A Manchester warehouseman published an exceedingly scurrilous pamphlet against the firm of Grant brothers holding up the elder partner to ridicule as Billy Button. William was informed by someone of the nature of the pamphlet, and his observation was that the man would live to repent of it. "'Oh,' said the libeller, when informed of the remark, "'he thinks that some time or other I shall be in his debt, but I will take good care of that.' It happens, however, that men in business do not always foresee who shall be their creditor, and it so turned out that the Grant's libeller became a bankrupt, and could not complete his certificate and begin business again without obtaining their signature. It seemed to him a hopeless case to call upon that firm for any favor, but the pressing claims of his family forced him to make the application. He appeared before the man whom he had ridiculed as Billy Button accordingly. He told his tale and produced his certificate. "'You wrote a pamphlet against us once,' said Mr. Grant. The supplicant expected to see his document thrown into the fire. 
instead of which mr grant signed the name of the firm and thus completed the necessary certificate we make it a rule he said handing it back never to refuse signing the certificate of an honest tradesman and we have never heard that you were anything else the tears started into the man's eye ah continued mr grant you see my saying was true that you would live to repent writing that pamphlet i did not mean it as a threat i only meant that some day you would know us better and repent having tried to injure us i do i do indeed repent it well well you know us now but how do you get on what are you going to do the poor man stated that he had friends who would assist him when his certificate was obtained but how are you off in the meantime the answer was that having given up every farthing to his creditors he had been compelled to stint his family in even the common necessaries of life that he might be enabled to pay for his certificate my good fellow this will never do your wife and family must not suffer in this way be kind enough to take this ten-pound note to your wife from me there there now don't cry it will be all well with you yet keep up your spirits set to work like a man and you will raise your head among the best of us yet the overpowered man endeavoured with choking utterance to express his gratitude but in vain and putting his hand to his face he went out of the room sobbing like a child the true gentleman is one whose nature has been fashioned after the highest models it is a grand old name that of gentleman and has been recognized as a rank and power in all stages of society Quote, the gentleman is always a gentleman said the old french general of his regiment of scottish gentry at rosillon and invariably proves itself such in need and in danger to possess this character is a dignity of itself commanding the instinctive homage of every generous mind and those who will not bow to titular rank yet will do homage to the gentleman his qualities depend not upon fashion or manners but upon moral worth not on personal possessions but on personal qualities the psalmist briefly describes him as one quote, that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart the gentleman is eminently distinguished for his self-respect he values his character not so much of it only as can be seen of others but as he sees it himself having regard for the approval of his inward monitor and as he respects himself so by the same law does he respect others humanity is sacred in his eyes and thence proceeds politeness and forbearance kindness and charity it is related of lord edward fitzgerald that while travelling in canada in company with the indians he was shocked by the sight of a poor squaw trudging along laden with her husband's trappings while the chief himself walked on unencumbered lord edward at once relieved the squaw of her pack by placing it upon his own shoulders a beautiful instance of what the french call politesse de coeur the inbred politeness of the true gentleman the true gentleman has a keen sense of honour scrupulously avoiding mean actions his standard of probity in word and action is high he does not shuffle or prevaricate dodge or skulk 
but is honest, upright, and straightforward. His law is rectitude, action in right lines. When he says yes, it is a law, and he dares to say the valiant no at the fitting season. The gentleman will not be bribed. Only the low-minded and unprincipled will sell themselves to those who are interested in buying them. When the upright Jonas Hanway officiated as commissioner victualling department, he declined to receive a present of any kind from a contractor, refusing thus to be biased in the performance of his public duty. A fine trait of the same kind is to be noted in the life of the Duke of Wellington. Shortly after the Battle of Assay, one morning the Prime Minister of the Court of Hyderabad waited upon him for the purpose of privately ascertaining what territory and what advantages had been reserved for his master in the treaty of peace between the Maratha princes and the Nizam. To obtain this information, the minister offered the general a very large sum, considerably above one hundred thousand pounds. Looking at him quietly for a few seconds, Sir Arthur said, It appears, then, that you are capable of keeping a secret? Yes, certainly, replied the minister. Then so am I, said the English general, smiling, and bowed the minister out. It was to Wellington's great honor that, though uniformly successful in India, and with the power of earning in such modes as this enormous wealth, he did not add a farthing to his fortune, and returned to England a comparatively poor man. A similar sensitiveness and high-mindedness characterized his noble relative, the Marquis of Wellesley, who, on one occasion, positively refused a present of one hundred thousand pounds, proposed to be given him by the directors of the East India Company on the conquest of Mysore. It is not necessary, said he, for me to allude to the independence of my character and the proper dignity attaching to my office. Other reasons, besides these important considerations, lead me to decline this testimony, which is not suitable to me. I think of nothing but our army. I should be much distressed to curtail the share of those brave soldiers. And the Marquis's resolution to refuse the present remained unalterable. Sir Charles Napier exhibited the same noble self-denial in the course of his Indian career. He rejected all the costly gifts which barbaric princes were ready to lay at his feet, and said with truth, quote, Certainly I could have got thirty thousand pounds since my coming to Sind, but my hands do not want washing yet. Our dear father's sword, which I wore in both battles, Meni and Hyderabad, is unstained. Riches and rank have no necessary connection with genuine gentlemanly qualities. The poor man may be a true gentleman, in spirit and in daily life. He may be honest, truthful, upright, polite, temperate, courageous, self-respecting, and self-helping. That is, be a true gentleman. The poor man, with a rich spirit, is in all ways superior to the rich man with a poor spirit. To borrow St. Paul's words, the former is as having nothing, yet possessing all things, while the other, though possessing all things, has nothing. The first hopes everything and fears nothing. The last hopes nothing and fears everything. Only the poor in spirit are really poor. He who has lost all, but retains his courage, cheerfulness, hope, virtue, and self-respect, is still rich. For such a man, 
the world is as it were held in trust his spirit dominating over its grosser cares he can still walk erect a true gentleman occasionally the brave and gentle character may be found under the humblest garb here is an old illustration but a fine one once on a time when the adige suddenly overflowed its banks the bridge of verona was carried away with the exception of the centre arch on which stood a house whose inhabitants supplicated help from the windows while the foundations were visibly giving way Quote, i will give a hundred french louis said the count spolverini who stood by to any person who will venture to deliver these unfortunate people a young peasant came forth from the crowd seized a boat and pushed into the stream he gained the pier received the whole family into the boat and made for the shore where he landed them in safety here is your money my brave young fellow said the count no was the answer of the young man i do not sell my life give the money to this poor family who have need of it here spoke the true spirit of the gentleman though he was but in the garb of a peasant not less touching was the heroic conduct of a party of deal boatmen in rescuing the crew of a collier brig in the downs but a short time ago a sudden storm which set in from the northeast drove several ships from their anchors and it being low water one of them struck the ground at a considerable distance from the shore when the sea made a clean breach over her there was not a vestige of hope for the vessel such was the fury of the wind and the violence of the waves there was nothing to tempt the boatmen on shore to risk their lives in saving either ship or crew for not a farthing of salvage was to be looked for but the daring intrepidity of the deal boatman was not wanting at this critical moment no sooner had the brig grounded than simon pritchard one of the many persons assembled along the beach threw off his coat and called out who will come with me and try to save that crew instantly twenty men sprang forward with i will and i but only seven were wanted and running down a galley punt to the surf they leapt in and dashed through the breakers amidst the cheers of those on shore how the boat lived in such a sea seemed a miracle but in a few minutes impelled by the strong arms of these gallant men she flew on and reached the stranded ship catching her on the top of a wave and in less than a quarter of an hour from the time the boat left the shore the six men who composed the crew of the collier were landed safe on walmer beach a nobler instance of indomitable courage and disinterested heroism on the part of the deal boatmen brave though they are always known to be perhaps cannot be cited and we have pleasure in here placing it on record mr turnbull in his work on austria relates an anecdote of the late emperor francis in illustration of the manner in which the government of that country has been indebted for its hold upon the people to the personal qualities of its princes Quote, at the time when the cholera was raging in vienna the emperor with an aide-de-camp was strolling about the streets of the city and suburbs when a corpse was dragged past on a litter unaccompanied by a single mourner the unusual circumstance attracted his attention and he learnt on inquiry that the deceased was a poor person who had died of cholera and that the relatives had not ventured on what was then considered the very dangerous office of attending the body to the grave Quote, then said francis we will supply their place 
for none of my poor people should go to the grave without the last mark of respect. End quote. And he followed the body to the distant place of interment, and, bareheaded, stood to see every rite and observance respectfully performed. End quote. Fine though this illustration may be of the qualities of the gentleman, we can match it by another, equally good, of two English navvies in Paris, as related in a morning paper a few years ago. Quote, One day a hearse was observed ascending the steep rue de Clichy on its way to Montmartre, bearing a coffin of poplar wood with its cold corpse. Not a soul followed, not even the living dog of the dead man, if he had one. The day was rainy and dismal. Passers-by lifted the hat, as is usual when a funeral passes, and that was all. At length it passed two English navvies, who found themselves in Paris on their way from Spain. A right feeling spoke from beneath their serge jackets. "'Poor wretch,' said one to the other, "'no one follows him. Let us two follow.' And the two took off their hats and walked bareheaded after the corpse of a stranger to the cemetery of Montmartre. Above all, the gentleman is truthful. He feels that truth is the summit of being, and the soul of rectitude in human affairs. Lord Chesterfield declared that truth made the success of a gentleman. The Duke of Wellington, writing to Kellerman on the subject of prisoners on parole, when opposed to that general in the peninsula, told him that if there was one thing on which an English officer prided himself more than another, excepting his courage, it was truthfulness. Quote, when English officers, said he, have given their parole of honor not to escape, be sure that they will not break it. Believe me, trust to their word. The word of an English officer is a surer guarantee than the vigilance of sentinels. End quote. True courage and gentleness go hand in hand. The brave man is generous and forbearant, never unforgiving and cruel. It was finally said of Sir John Franklin by his friend Perry that, quote, He was a man who never turned his back upon danger yet, of that tenderness that he would not brush away a mosquito, end quote. A fine trait of character, truly gentle and worthy of the spirit of Bayard, was displayed by a French officer in the cavalry combat of Elbedon in Spain. He had raised his sword to strike Sir Felton Harvey, but perceiving his antagonist had only one arm, he instantly stopped, brought down his sword before Sir Felton in the usual salute, and rode past. To this may be added a noble and gentle deed of nay during the same peninsular war. Charles Napier was taken prisoner at Coruna, desperately wounded and his friends at home did not know whether he was alive or dead. A special messenger was sent out from England with a frigate to ascertain his fate. Baron Couleur received the flag and informed Ney of the arrival. Quote, Let the prisoner see his friends, said Ney, and tell them that he is well and well treated. Collet lingered, and Ney asked, smiling, What, more he wanted? He has an old mother, a widow and blind. Has he? then let him go himself and tell her he is alive. As the exchange of prisoners between the countries was not then allowed, Ney knew that he risked the displeasure of the emperor by setting the young officer at liberty, but Napoleon approved the generous act. 
Notwithstanding the wail which we occasionally hear for the chivalry that is gone, our own age has witnessed deeds of bravery and gentleness, of heroic self-denial and manly tenderness, which are unsurpassed in history. The events of the last few years have shown that our countrymen are as yet an undegenerate race. On the bleak plateau of Sebastopol, in the dripping perilous trenches of that twelve months leaguer, men of all classes proved themselves worthy of the noble inheritance of character which their forefathers had bequeathed to them. But it was in the hour of the great trial in India that the qualities of our countrymen shone forth the brightest. The march of Neil on Kanpur, of Havelock on Lucknow, officers and men alike, urged on by the hope of rescuing the women and children, are events which the whole history of chivalry cannot equal. Outram's conduct to Havelock, in resigning to him, though his inferior officer, the honor of leading the attack on Lucknow, was a trait worthy of Sidney, and alone justifies the title which has been awarded to him of the Bayard of India. The death of Henry Lawrence, that brave and gentle spirit, his last words before dying, quote, Let there be no fuss about me, let me be buried with the men, end quote the anxious solicitude of Sir Colin Campbell to rescue the beleaguered of Lucknow, and to conduct his long train of women and children by night from thence to Kanpur, which he reached amidst the all but overpowering assault of the enemy. The care with which he led them across the perilous bridge, never ceasing his charge over them until he had seen the precious convoy safe on the road to Allahabad, and then burst upon the Gwalior contingent like a thunderclap. Such things make us feel proud of our countrymen, and inspire the conviction that the best and purest glow of chivalry is not dead, but vigorously lives among us yet. Even the common soldiers proved themselves gentlemen under their trials. At Agra, where so many poor fellows had been scorched and wounded in their encounter with the enemy, they were brought into the fort and tenderly nursed by the ladies and the rough, gallant fellows proved gentle as any children. During the weeks that the ladies watched over their charge, never a word was said by any soldier that could shock the ear of the gentlest. And when all was over, when the mortally wounded had died, and the sick and maimed who survived were able to demonstrate their gratitude, they invited their nurses and the chief people of Agra to an entertainment in the beautiful gardens of the Taj, where, amidst flowers and music, the rough veterans, all scarred and mutilated as they were, stood up to thank their gentle countrywomen who had clothed and fed them, ministered to their wants during their time of sore distress. In the hospitals at Zaftari, too, many wounded and sick blessed the kind English ladies who nursed them, and nothing can be finer than the thought of the poor sufferers unable to rest through pain, blessing the shadow of Florence Nightingale as it fell upon their pillow in the night watches. The wreck of the Birkenhead off the coast of Africa on the 27th of February, 1852, affords another memorable illustration of the chivalrous spirit of common men acting in this 19th century, of which any age might be proud. The vessel was steaming along the African coast with 472 men and 166 women and children on board. The men belonged to several regiments then serving at the Cape, 
and consisted principally of recruits who had been only a short time in the service. At two o'clock in the morning, while all were asleep below, the ship struck with violence upon a hidden rock which penetrated her bottom, and it was at once felt she must go down. The rolls of the drums called the soldiers to arms on the upper deck, and the men mustered as if on parade. The word was passed to save the women and children, and the helpless creatures were brought from below, mostly undressed, and handed silently into the boats. When they had all left the ship's side, the commander of the vessel thoughtlessly called out, All those can swim, jump overboard, and make for the boats. But Captain Wright of the 91st Highlanders said, No, if you do that, the boats with the women must be swamped. And the brave men stood motionless. There was no boat remaining, no hope of safety, but not a heart quailed. No one flinched from his duty in that trying moment. Quote, there was not a murmur nor a cry amongst them, said Captain Wright, a survivor, until the vessel made her final plunge. Down went the ship, and down went the heroic band, firing a foot of joie as they sank beneath the waves. Glory and honor to the gentle and the brave. The examples of such men never die, but, like their memories, are immortal. There are many tests by which a gentleman may be known, but there is one that never fails. How does he exercise power over those subordinate to him? How does he conduct himself towards women and children? How does the officer treat his men, the employer his servants, the master his pupils, and man in every station those who are weaker than himself? The discretion, forbearance, and kindliness with which power in such cases is used may indeed be regarded as the crucial test of gentlemanly character. When Lamont was one day passing through a crowd, he accidentally trod upon the foot of a young fellow who forthwith struck him on the face. Ah, sire, said Lamont, you will surely be sorry for what you have done when you know that I am blind. He who bullies those who are not in position to resist may be a snob, but cannot be a gentleman. He who tyrannizes over the weak and helpless may be a coward, but no true man. The tyrant, it has been said, is but a slave turned inside out. Strength and the consciousness of strength in a right-hearted man imparts a nobleness to his character, but he will be most careful how he uses it, for, quote, it is excellent to have a giant's strength, but it is tyrannous to use it like a giant, end quote. Gentleness is indeed the best test of gentlemanliness, a consideration for the feelings of others, for his inferiors and dependents as well as his equals, and respect for their self-respect, will pervade the true gentleman's whole conduct. He will rather himself suffer a small injury than by an uncharitable construction of another's behavior incur the risk of committing a great wrong. He will be forbearant of the weaknesses, the failings, and the errors of those whose advantages in life have not been equal to his own. He will be merciful, even to his beast. He will not boast of his wealth, or his strength, or his gifts. He will not be puffed up by success, or unduly depressed by failure. He will not obtrude his views on others, but speak his mind freely when occasion calls for it. 
he will not confer favors with a patronizing air. Sir Walter Scott once said of Lord Lothian, He is a man from whom one may receive a favor, and that's saying a great deal in these days. Lord Chatham has said that the gentleman is characterized by his sacrifice of self and preference of others to himself in the little daily occurrences of life. In illustration of this ruling spirit of considerateness in a noble character, we may cite the anecdote of the gallant Sir Ralph Abercrombie, of whom it is related that when mortally wounded in the Battle of Albuquerque, he was carried in a litter on board the Fondurant, and to ease his pain a soldier's blanket was placed under his head, from which he experienced considerable relief. He asked what it was. It's only a soldier's blanket, was the reply. Whose blanket is it? he said, half lifting himself up only one of the men's. I wish to know the name of the man whose blanket this is. It is Duncan Roy's of the 42nd, Sir Ralph. Then see that Duncan Roy gets his blanket this very night. Even to ease his dying agony, the general would not deprive the private soldier of his blanket for one night. The incident is as good in its way as that of the dying Signy handing his cup of water to the private soldier on the field as Zupfen. The quaint old Fuller sums up in a few words the character of the true gentleman and man of action in describing that of the great admiral Sir Francis Drake. Quote, Chaste in his life, just in his dealings, true of his word, merciful to those who are under him, and hating nothing so much as idleness. In matters especially of moment, he was never wont to rely on other men's care, how trusty or skillful soever they may seem to be, but always contemning danger and refusing no toil. He was wont himself to be one, whoever was a second, at every turn, wherever courage, skill, or industry was to be employed. End of section 35 End of self-help with illustrations of conduct and perseverance by Samuel Smiles.